for those of you who were here last week, I have a couple questions for you, but for those of you who were not here, uh, this is the second sermon in a series on the theology of work. What, what is work? Why do we work? Uh, what should our work look like? Uh, last week, we, we stepped back and looked at work before the fall in creation. God made workers in his image to go and to be selfless and to do good work. That's what we, that was the big idea. Now, my question for you guys is, for those of you who were here, if, if you were encouraged at all last week to go out and work, uh, how long did that last? Uh, yeah, exactly. By t- yeah, Sunday night, yeah. I, I like to think I made it till Tuesday, but I'm sure by even Monday it was already gone. And, and that's what we're going to talk about now. I, I mean, last week, to a certain extent, was a little pie in the sky. Yeah, God made you to work well and to work selflessly. Awesome. And, and, and I talked to people. People were excited to go do that. But after, the cre- after creation, something happened. Something happened to our work. And what we're going to look at today is, is what happened to our work. And so before I begin, let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this, your morning, to come together as the people of God and to worship you. I thank you for all of the people here who work so diligently to put this service together. I thank you for everyone who came. I pray, uh, Father, that as the Spirit moved them to join us today, that uh, the Spirit would continue to move in their hearts through your message, that you would uh, give the comfort and the conviction that each of us needs. Uh, I know, Father, that I need a great deal. As I read earlier this week, uh, we, sin, uh, we drink iniquity like it's water. And so, Father, we are here because uh, we are parched from the iniquity, and we need grace, and we need comfort, and we need strength to go into the world and to do and to be and to live in Christ, to our family and to our coworkers. We thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would open it to us now. So the verse that I'm going to be explaining today is in Romans chapter 8. Uh, it's verses 19 through 21. I'm going to bounce around a little bit, but I'm going to come back to this one a number of times, especially at the end. But let me read that for us. Romans 8, verses 19 through 21. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The very ground that was cursed because of us is longing, is waiting, is thirsty. It, It can't wait for the revealing of the sons of God who will liberate it. Now, God who commanded us to be fruitful, subdue and multiply to fill the earth, He is the one who issued a sentence of judgment that makes fruitfulness far more difficult. Okay, We did not faithfully follow him in the garden. We did not faithfully work in the garden. And so he, he, ironically enough, comes and makes it very difficult to do the thing that he commanded us to do, which is work fruitfully and subdue the world. Childbirth is more painful. I'd like to note here it's not the most painful thing that you can go through, which is a whole other thing, but it is more painful. It is more painful. I like to push back against uh, the theory in the world that it's like that every woman should just be screaming her head off in a hospital with like epidurals coming out of her ears. It's not, it's not the most painful thing. Okay. In, in Christ, even that work can be done um, more calmly. Anyway, I'm I'm not going to go on and on about that. 
I, yeah, I love my wife. I just I wanted to point that out. That was her note here for me. Adam, who failed to obey God, moving on, is now estranged from the two necessary ingredients to fruitfulness. Okay, his wife and the very ground. God says, "Go and be fruitful." And what does he need? He needs a helper, a helpmate, and he needs the ground in order to do that. Adam's helpmate now suffers more in childbirth, and the ground yields more than fruit. It also yields thorns. Having been commissioned to fruitfulness through childbirth and subduing the world, man and woman fell into sin, and pain is added to what God created them to do. Okay, Work is not the curse. The pain in work is the curse. Hard work isn't a curse. Pain in work is the curse. Thorns now exist where once the ground yielded willingly to our hands. I was once trimming the hedge bushes on a beautiful summer day. This actually occurred. I know most of you have seen my house. You're wondering when was that. It was, it was several years ago. <laughs> and here's actually partially why. Now, I was running the cutters over the top of the bush. You know those little electric ones that, that just zigzag like this? And I'm running it over the top, and I think this must be what it was like in Eden. And, and then the clippers catch this blackberry vine that I didn't see. And of course, it's not strong enough to do anything to the blackberry vine, except it whips back and, and just takes like a huge chunks out of my face. And, and I, here I was like, you know, having this holy moment where I think this, I am like Adam in the garden. And then God's like, no, no, thorns, thorns in your face. And sadly, I, I have many, many stories. I have lost many a battle against blackberry thorns. Many. I'm like 0 for 25 at this point. <laughs> now, thorns now attack us. Like, literally, the thorn bush attacked me. It attacks us and our fruitfulness. In Genesis 3.16, Eve is told that her desire will be for her husband. Now, this is a strange phrase that stumbles a lot of people. We're going to talk about it for a second. The term rendered desire occurs only three times in the Old Testament. The other two instances being Genesis 4.7 and uh, Song of Solomon 7.10, which I'm not going to get into here. There's kids <laughs> present. In Genesis 4.7, though, God tells Cain that sin's desire is contrary to him, and sin's desire is to rule over him. Sin's desire is contrary to Cain's, and sin's desire is to rule over him. Sin wants to determine his actions and not follow his lead. The use of this word in both cases suggests that Eve's desire for her husband is a desire to determine his actions, and the man's ruling over woman will be a rejection and suppression of her influence. Okay, this, this is here now. We see exactly what happens between men and women in the fall, right? For women, this is what, what happens. Men are like a project. They're like dolls. You dress them up a certain way. You get them to talk a certain way and eat a certain way. It's not working for my wife. I'm sorry. <laughs> But this is what happens, right? Men are a project. I'm going to fix him up. I'm going to show, I'm going to, my desire for him is to be a certain kind of guy, and I'm going to make sure that that happens. Now, what men, though, right? We don't listen. We don't listen to anything. And it's because in, in, in our flesh, we are resisting woman's advice to us, right? What are you talking about? Take a shower. <laughs> right? I, it's so funny. I, I have six kids, and, and I have yet to learn how small to cut food. And, and it's like I'm told... I'm told every time we eat, every time we make soup, you're cutting those things too big. Somebody's going to the ER. And what happens? Usually I choke, which is funny enough. But, <laughs> but we don't listen. This is what men do. We don't listen. The relational harmony seen in the unashamed nakedness of Genesis 2.25 is gone. Gone. No longer does the woman gladly embrace her created role of helper, 
and man no longer desires her help. I got it, girl. Right? <laughs> Hold my beer. <laughs> Neither man or woman were cursed. Neither one of them were cursed. uh, The argument really is that nothing can come back from that. Satan was cursed. He can't come back from that. Now, the ground was cursed on behalf of us. It can be liberated. But a man and a woman, if they would have been cursed, that would have been the end of the story. Right? Wipe your hands, God. He's going to have to start over. But it's not us that's cursed. It's the ground on our behalf. It's the fruitfulness that we are called to bring into the world. God curses the ground and introduces thorns into both Adam and Eve's work. And rather than working a blessed creation, man will now toil over a cursed ground, and he will have pain in his work all of his life. Grim. This is grim. And I want you to see how grim it really is. This is going to be a sermon where we talk about how grim it really is. God's word of judgment against sin makes the work painful, the environment unwieldy, and the relationships between men and women strained. Strained. <laughs> that was, I should have used a different word, something more potent. Because of sin, work will appear fruitless, it will appear futile, and it all takes place in a fallen world. Now, these are the thorns I want to talk about. These are the thorns stuck in our hands. These are the thorns all of a sudden coming back at us out of the bush to take a chunk out of our face. Work is never actually fruitless. It never is. Okay? What, what I like about Christianity is that it's a bunch of defeats, or no, it's a bunch of victories cleverly disguised as defeats. Think about that, right? A, a, a man being hung on a cross looks like, any, looks like a lot of things. Victory, it does not look like. And the Bible is full of that. It's full of that. And you would think, where's the fruit in this? The guy doesn't have a wife, he doesn't have kids, he doesn't have a kingdom, he has nothing. And yet, he's overcoming the world. Okay? Now, how many of you guys ever look at your work, honestly now, and think this is utterly fruitless? Yeah, show of hands. Thank you, brother. I am with you. We are either opposed to work, right? It's pointless, so why do it? Or we make it an idol. No, we were going to wrestle some fruit, fruitfulness out of this work. All right. We go to it like, like crazy people. We don't believe God's promises of fruitfulness. We struggle to believe in a God that transcends this world. We are out of communion with God until God brings us back into the fold. So fruitlessness and futility are perspective issues. Okay, it's important. When I say fruitlessness and I say futility, they don't actually exist. They occur in our minds. It's about the lies that we believe. It's about the truths that we believe. Can God take one housewife and change the world? Right? Can he take one escaped nun, right, in, in the Middle Ages, or in the Reformation, Van Boren, Luther's wife, she's this escaped nun hiding in a barrel. Okay, if you don't know anything about her, go and read as much as you can. She's phenomenal. She's phenomenal. Luther is not Luther without her. And, and, and she, here she is with her, her copped hair, hiding in a barrel that had at one point held fish, and, and she's escaping a nunnery. And, and you think, yeah, again, that looks like the guy on the cross. That, there's nothing good to come out of that. And, and all of us are like that. I am one court clerk in, in, in a system that I would not exactly call upright. Okay, a criminal justice system I would not call uh, ideal. And, and so it's, it's easy to think this is, you look at work and you're like, this is insane what these people are doing. And here I am, what am I ever going to do? It looks futile, it looks fruitless. But in Christ it never is. Now Tim Keller writes in his book, Every Good Endeavor, 
What do we mean when we say work is fruitless? We mean in all our work, we will be able to envision far more than we can accomplish, both because of a lack of ability and because of resistance in the environment around us. The experience of work will include pain, conflict, envy, and fatigue, and not all of our goals will be met. Your conflicts with others in the work environment will sap your confidence and undermine your productivity. We daydream about what we would do if somebody just gave us the opportunity. I don't know about you, but I have at times huge plans for what I'm going to accomplish, and they almost never come to fruition like I think. In fact, usually I'm fruitful in the end against what I was going to do. Right? God ends up bringing fruit into my life that is actually contrary to any plan I had. I was going to go this way, and this was going to be fruitful, and then everything is frustrating, and there's all the sin i got to repent of, and I go over here, and I'm actually way more fruitful than I ever thought I would be. And this is how God works. This is what he's doing in and through us. Our aspirations quickly lead us astray. We envy other people's education, their family connections, their stock options, their influence, their earning potential. We envy other people's fruitfulness and wonder where ours is. The funny thing is the person who we envy is usually envying someone else. Uh, what I've experienced a number of times now is the person I'm envying is envying me. And that is weird. You think, well, why don't we give thanks then for the, <laughs> for the things in our lives that clearly we don't see? We struggle with miscarriages and fertility issues. We get passed over for promotion. We don't get a job that we sought. We plan to bake and make a thousand things, but we never leave the laundry room or the nursery or the schoolroom. My poor sweet wife. I don't know how many times she's woken up with all the energy in the world to bake 30,000 pounds of bread and, <laughs> and sew everyone a new outfit and that it doesn't exactly happen, right? With six kids at all. And she doesn't feel like she gets out of the laundry room. I don't know if all of you other moms feel that way, but I'm assuming probably. We don't earn as much or produce as much. Our church doesn't grow or 401k doesn't grow. We aren't as spiritually mature and shock of shocks. The people around us aren't as spiritually mature as we'd hope. Okay? And everything that I'm saying here, these are lies. These are lies that mount up with, with eagle's wings and carry us far from God, far from joy, far from gratitude, far from contentment. These things mount up in us. All we're doing is looking around and not seeing the grace of God in people, not seeing opportunities to serve, but all we're seeing is other people's fruitfulness or the opportunities that we, we wish we would have had and didn't. All the plans we have that, didn't, that came to nothing. These are all lies. If you're experiencing the things that I'm describing here, it's not good. These are the thorns that I'm talking about. This is what gets in the way of real productivity. We are constantly comparing ourselves to others. Now, we are often categorized as those who are overly enthusiastic about what we can accomplish, and so you get depressed, <laughs> or people who don't see any point to it, and so they don't really do much. Now, most of us fall in one of those two categories. Some of us are right in the middle. Uh, I'm a person who oscillates between the two. I'm full of enthusiasm for what we're going to do, and then full of why am I even going to get off the couch, <laughs> right? I'm, most of us, I mean, some of us. I don't know about most of us, but a lot of us just think work is what we get through to get to retirement. It's just pointless. You're not going to change anything. I hear this all the time at work, this kind of pessimism. Uh, I, I came in, you, I get idealistic, and the people around me are like, this system is broken, and we're not going to fix it sitting here at this window, helping one defendant at a time. Except that's the only thing that ever does change anything. But anyway, that's for another sermon. Cynicism. 
Okay, cynicism enters in. Or just way too much optimism. So I don't know where you are at, but I'm sure it's one of those, or like me, you oscillate between the two. Now let's look at a few examples. Abraham, who was promised that his children would number the stars, at one point got a little frustrated, didn't he? He went to God and he's like, hey, where's these, uh, you know, I'm getting old. If we're going to equal the stars, we better get started. Uh, right right now, the Eleazar of Damascus, is, who's a servant, is going to inherit everything I own. Uh, and what's funny about Abraham is that he had another wife after Sarah died. And he actually had eight kids, uh, which the irony there is it doesn't, that, that's exactly how many stars are in the constellation of Orion. And so when he would look up to the sky, thinking of that promise, there's Orion, He's like, nah, not the whole sky, I guess, just this part of the sky is how many kids I have. I mean, is God a liar? Is God a liar? No. No, see, she's saying no. That's right. She, he is not a liar. Abraham suffers what we suffer. We don't, we don't see it. Now, if you take Abraham and you take his eight, okay, and you take uh, his grandkids, the 12, and you take their grandkids, which we go on and on and on, it actually, in, later in the Old Testament, says that Israel was so big, it was like the sands of the seashore. It's like the stars in the sky. It, it's hard to see what my little bit and your little bit and your little bit, how, how it's going to equal something in the end. But it does. This is what God does. It's very difficult to see this. But, but this is why it requires faith. This is why in the end what, what we need to do is get out of our own heads, get into the promises of God, and believe them because of the promises of God. Not because we see certain things in our lives. Uh, John Piper says this all the time. God is doing 100,000 things in your life of which you might be, um, you might be seeing three of them. Right? He's doing 100,000 things in your life. You might see three. And if you just look at the three and judge the three, you get a, a, a big misconception about what God is actually doing. Now, another example of this fruitlessness, I, it's so funny to me. I have two friends. I've known them since I was 14. Uh, one of them has said from day one he's going to be a doctor. He is a doctor. Uh, the other, uh, through crazy series of events, is a producer down in Los Angeles, uh, and he is extraordinarily wealthy and well-to-do. And, and we all three go out, uh, and of course the producer pays for everything, and, and he likes to buy food nobody even eats. It's like he just kind of throws the money around. It's funny. But it's hilarious because they, they own homes. They're successful. I mean, they write papers. They work on big projects. And, and I always, sitting there, we're all the same age, and, uh, you know, the economic differences are blaring. Uh, but then what is hilarious to me is I, I never go alone because they're unbelievers. I take my wife, which, ha, gotcha. Anyway, but, but what, what is funny to me is as we're sitting there and we have this conversation, I'm looking across at them thinking, man, I'm not, I'm not that fruitful. And they're looking across at me and our jokes about our six kids, and they think the same thing, right? And this is what we all go through. We don't understand how to really truly judge fruitfulness. We don't. Now, fruitfulness isn't the only thing. There's this little thing called futility, which it mentions in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8.20. For the creation was subjected to futility. The Oxford English Dictionary defines futility as pointlessness or uselessness. Okay, So this is different than fruitfulness. This is even when you have fruitfulness, you look at it and you think it is meaningless. I have all this fruit, and there's no point to it, uh, which is uh, my, my friends, this is what they go through. At this age in their life, they look at everything they've accomplished. There's no, it appears to be absolutely and utterly meaningless. As I said, they're unbelievers. 
When Adam sinned, the created world was subjected to futility. Futility has more to do with our perspective than it does with the ultimate reality. To be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue appears to be a futile task. It appears hopelessly impossible, right? One mom, one engineer, one preacher, one painter, one technician. Alone, our work seems as pointless as charging into hell with a squirt gun, right? I am going to go put those fires out. One thinks of more than just the thorns and thistles at this point or pain in childbirth. One thinks of the repeated refrain that is vanity in Ecclesiastes. Now, what's interesting is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes, they don't use the word vanity. They say futility, which is why uh, in Romans, this is what um, uh, St. Paul is quoting. He's using this word because that's what it, he, they use in Ecclesiastes, because it is subjected to this futility. This meaninglessness, that's what is meant by vanity. Nothing lasts, nothing is permanent except change and decay. The fulfillment of our calling seems so incremental, incremental, so hard to see positive outcomes. Right? Nothing lasts. How often do you have to weed? This shirt was clean yesterday. It's already not clean. I spilled coffee on it. I have that story about that Pooh Bear cup, that stupid Pooh Bear cup when I first had kids. And it was dirty every day. And I washed it, and there's no Pooh Bear on it anymore. It's just this cup. And I think, how many times have I washed? How many hours of my life have I spent watching this Pooh Bear cup? <laughs> and, and this is what it's, and you're like, okay, now, was it clean for someone to use? Yes. Is it my kid's favorite cup? Yes. Uh, all kinds of good things about it, but the futility of it. Why? Why? That's why I like paper, paper plates and stuff. Because you just get rid of it. You avoid that, like, uh, life isn't futile. <laughs> It's true. And then I can't fit all my garbage in my garbage can. <laughs> Tim Keller said in his book, Every Good Endeavor, work under the sun is meaningless because it does not last. And so it takes away our hope in the future. It also alienates us from God and from one, uh, one another. And so it takes away our joy in the present. It does. It looks meaningless. And so who can take joy in something that seems meaningless? But again, this isn't it. Futility, fruitlessness, these aren't the only struggles. These are struggles we have in our minds. But we also go into the workforce in the world, right? We, we covered this. How many of you guys go into the world when you work? When you go to the grocery store, you go to your job, whatever. How many of you, raise your hands, come on, this is interactive, go into the world when you work? Now, is that a fallen world <laughs> or a redeemed world? How many of us work at a Christian company? My wife works at a Christian company because my home's a Christian company. But <laughs> Actually, if you look on her Facebook page, it says she works for Michael Kloss. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's very humbling that you would do that. So how many of us, though, go into uh, Christian workplaces? I, again, I'm a court clerk at King County District Court. I file paperwork uh, at least once, twice a day. So John becomes Jane or, you know, Mike becomes Melissa. Um, and, and I file that paperwork, and it's not exactly a bastion of upright godliness, if you know what I'm saying, my work on a regular basis. And so this is, this is with the other thorns. You, you, we go into the workforce, and we don't just have fruitlessness and futility bouncing around, the lies in our heads. We have thorns all over the place, all over the place. Uh, God said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So if you're either a son of God, daughter of God, or a son or daughter of Satan, there's no options. And, and the people who are sons and daughters of Satan generally have no idea what spirit they are of. 
They have no idea. But they don't have the same dad. They don't have the same work ethic. They don't have the same uh, calling in their lives. The Christian worker is constantly confronted by bad examples, hearing profanity and coarse joking and blasphemy. Right? It's really hard to be the only one not laughing at some horrible joke that you hear. Uh, it's, 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 there's this awkward moment whenever Game of Thrones has been out, and I'm like the only person in the office who hasn't seen it. Which, oh, why? Oh, geez, here we, here we go. <laughs> right? I, the question that I do fear. Well, why not? Your kids don't go to public school? Why not? Right? There's this tension at work. Because now what we, it's not just about the work. Now we've got worldviews colliding. The Christian worker is exposed to immodest dress, Seductive speech, the Christian worker is subjected to gossip and slander, complaining, backbiting, malicious speech, lies subjected to office smut in which sin is glamorized, marriage vows are broken, and flirting is frivolous and wanton. Uh, I remember there was a place I worked at, um, this very high-end uh, architecture firm, and the head of HR was sleeping with the head of something else, and everyone knew, at work knew, and then there was the Christmas party in which everyone, if you know what I'm saying, their spouses also knew. And I wasn't, I was just a Christian at the time. And in being a cage stage person, I just didn't, I, I was, I had no idea what to do. This is terrifying. This is terrifying because everyone at work is talking about it. Everyone knows about it. Everyone's taking sides. And I want no one's side. Right? Can I just go to my desk and do my work? So I don't know about you, but sometimes office politics, this is what happens. It totally takes over. Uh, my minor was in poly, political science. Um, and so I think, okay, office politics, I'm ready. Uh, but it doesn't, no. <laughs> No, it's not, it does not look like John Stuart Mill. Okay? It, it, it resembles Lord of the Flies. That's what it's like. Christian workers are constantly exposed to the sins of others. Um, some workers are required to travel away from home and family and spend a lot of nights in hotels. Right? We're all confronted all the time by father hunger, provocatively dressed women, overtly insecure men, hatred of the fruit of the womb, People opposed to uh, the selflessness of marriage and childbearing. I'm t- the funniest thing you can do is if you have six kids, go to Whole Foods. Okay, Go to like a PCC in Capitol Hill. Um, it is entertaining and actually a little scary. It's gotten scarier than entertaining. <laughs> Moms can hardly get the time to get out of their house coat, let alone the house. Right? Warm coffee and a grown-up conversation. Ha, that's funny. That doesn't happen. So these are the thorns. You think, where's my grown-up conversation? Where's my warm coffee? How come I haven't taken this house coat off all day? Poor moms. They are surrounded, All uh, moms are, surrounded by the need of children, domestic maintenance, and expectations that can drain all their hope, self-dignity, and joy. It's true. Another thorn is our motivations. Right? It's so funny. Ecclesiastes 4.4 says this. This is how Ecclesiastes 4.4 sums up all work. Uh, then I saw that all toil and, and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. <laughs> all of it. It's all out of envy. Now, I don't know about you, but all of this creates just this constant tension for me at work. Now, again, I, defendants are actually easy. Defendants are easy. The people that come up to my window, people do not go to court because they're having a phenomenal day and have been making great decisions. <laughs> and so Christian compassion just kind of, on it, it's very easy, flows out of me. You see the brokenness. What, what I cannot stand is my coworkers. I'll be honest. Uh, somebody comes up to the window and leaves, and they, they sit there for 20 minutes talking about how they've never gotten a ticket uh, for no, in, no insurance. 
I would never get caught drunk driving. I saw you at the nondescript holiday party in December, and but by the grace of God, right? I'm tempted toward wrath and indignation toward my coworkers, not, my, not the defendants. I have discovered that I have no patience for impatient people. I can't tolerate intolerance. I look down on pride. I curse foul language, which I did actually one day. I cursed foul language. <laughs> I've discovered that I have no patience for impatient people. Oh, I said that already. My real job must be logging because I keep a ready supply of boards right here in my eyes. <laughs> I'm not actually a cork clerk. I'm a lumberjack, turns out. <laughs> I could build my own palace in heaven with this much lumber. Like the cedars of Lebanon is the thing I say all the time at work. <laughs> like the cedars of Lebanon, the palace I could build. I can hardly see my coworkers' personal struggles or God's image in them. I'm, I'm not kidding. It, 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 it fills me with indignation. <laughs> and, and this is what work does, right? I don't go to work and it's like, oh, I'm selfless and I'm going to do good work. This is fantastic. No, I go and you hear complaining. And then you complain about the complainers. It's so funny how it's all, it just twists you in knots. And all this thorn, and you're not focused on the work, and, and, and you get so annoyed with the people you're working with, you, you, then you get, start to get frustrated with the people you're working for. The other thing is, um, this is an, another one that my coworkers are baffled by. I eat lunch in my car. We have a really nice lunchroom, and I never eat in it. Uh, I, I'm one of nine clerks. I'm the only guy. This explains it a little bit. And, and I do not sit in the lunchroom. Uh, the ladies love to talk to me about all sorts of things, to get the male opinion about why their husband is actually a deadbeat, um, like confirmation. Uh, I, I've been asked about um, fertility issues. It, it's crazy what, what, what people will talk to me about in the lunchroom. And so I warm up my food, or you just eat it cold now, in the car. I go to the parking lot and, and, re, and stay there and eat in the car. Uh, there's one judge who likes to give a daily lecture on how stupid Trump is. Um, and the conservative conspiracy to destroy poor people and women. Uh, and and I, I don't think it's ever even crossed her mind that conservative people might work at the court. I, I hope she never finds out. Because, <laughs> I mean, I remember the first time I'm eating it, I was, I'm like waiting for the joke. Like, is this, is this, no. And then it, she did it again the next day. She gets out the newspaper, talks about the, conspir the conspiracy. Now, while we're working side by side, many of you might ha have this. When you're working by people side by side and you're building the machine, you're doing the accounting, you're, you're clerking the, the case, it, it's actually fairly easy, isn't it, to just work alongside people. Uh, but as soon as there's social time at all, it gets very awkward and f very tense. I, I, I'm terrified that this judge is going to turn to me one day and ask me what I think. Uh, she went on about vaccinations one day, and she was looking at me, and I could just tell. She knew I had kids, and I got up, and I just walked out as fast as I could. Right? And because what, what happens? Am I focused on being a good witness? Right? Am I going to go to the gallows for the gospel from everything that I've described here? No. I'm trying to avoid all of that like the plague. And these are the thorns. Right? We fear men. We, we don't walk uprightly. We don't walk just like, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I love Jesus, and I don't care who knows it. No, we try to just go to work because work isn't about the gospel. It's just about work. I have kids. I've got to feed them. We just try to make it through, don't we? And, and all these thorns take away. We, we all wonder why we're not better witnesses. And it's because of all of these thorns. This, this is what is really going on in your workplace. 
There are people you are afraid will ask you what you think. We are afraid that people will, will turn to us and start having a conversation with us about gay marriage. I, I accidentally one day <laughs> said I'm so glad that I don't work for the clerk's office because the county has a clerk's office. And in our courtroom, they give marriage licenses to anybody who wants one. And I have handed them in, man, I'm glad I don't have that job. And then, you know, five people turn and look at me like, oh, why not? Um, uh, well, I can't just run out of the lunchroom at that moment. <laughs> it's all too easy to just blend in. But we have to remember what C.S. Lewis said about courage. Okay? C.S. Lewis said, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form every virtue has at the testing point. That, that, that's what we need. Now, these are the thorns that choke my productivity. These are the thorns that are constantly in my feet, in my hands, coming back up out of the bush to, to take a pound of flesh. This is what we're struggling against. And so what, what, we, need, what we need is someone to deliver us. Right? We, we are like the ground. Who, where are the sons of God who will come and deliver us from these thorns? Where is my courage? Where is my virtue? Where is my hope? Is my work meaningful? Right? Am I in the right vocation? Does my vocation matter at all? These, this is, we need someone to come and deliver us from this, These, this bondage that we have to, to what our eyes see, to the frustrations that, that come. With God's pronouncement, however, of judgment in Genesis 3, he also gave us hope. Okay, this is, he gave us hope. He didn't just say, here's some thorns, good luck with that. In Genesis 3.15, God promised that a son would come to deliver man from Satan's sin and death, reversing the fall of man by restoring him, his relationships, and his work. Eve has this hope when the first man is born. Right? When her son is born, she says, God has given me a son. Because she believes, I think, that, that the promise is now going to be fulfilled, and they're going to get out of this whole curse thing. But the first uh, man, whoever, who, whoever lived after Adam and Eve, what was his name? Do you guys remember his name? The first son of Adam and Eve. Cain, not the son of promise, right? Not the son of promise. He turns out he is also the, the son of Satan because Satan is a murderer, okay? And so here we get into this whole melodrama of what the Bible is actually about. These two families, both of them coming through man, warring against one another, and in the midst of this promise, in the very beginning, she's told, you're going to have a son that comes, who delivers you from this war that you have now entered into. And the very next time we see this is actually Genesis 5.29. I think this is the next prophecy that's messianic, that's about this promised son who's ultimately going to come. Genesis 5.28-29. through 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, after Adam and Eve, you go down through Genesis, and what you have is the first promise about the Messiah is a promise about our work, is a promise about the painful toil. This is how, it's not sins, all this internal stuff. Liberation from sin is a liberation of the whole world. It's a liberation of, of everything that our hands touch. This is what Lamech, by, at this point, is desperate for, for the people of God. Someone is going to come. Noah means rest and give us rest from this toil. Someone is going to deliver us from the pain of the work of our hands. 
This is what it meant to have the Messiah come. Now, Noah fulfills this. That, that, that's another sermon. Uh, in, in, in a nutshell, okay, he carries the people of God through the waters of cleansing to a new creation. Think about that for a second. Okay? Jesus carries us through the water of cleansing to a new creation. Okay, so what you see is that Noah fulfills this, but there's more to it. There's a greater Noah to come, a greater rest to come. A man would come from the very dirt, truly human, who would deliver mankind from the curse of thorns and pain, restoring fruitfulness, freeing us to fulfill the cultural mandate to subdue, to rule, and to fill the earth with our restored work. Now, Noah is a type of Jesus, okay? Noah is a type of Jesus, and the fact that he carries a new humanity, as I said, through the waters of cleansing to new life. But it is uh, fascinating that the very first promise of a Messiah that came after the first generation of humans are promises about deliverance from the thorns that make our work so painful. Okay, I really want you guys to think about this. This is what, in the very beginning, they thought a Messiah was coming to do. Calvin explains the connection in his commentary. The Jews do not judge erroneously in declaring that Lamech's expression to be a prophecy, but they are too gross in restricting to agriculture what is applicable to all those miseries of human life which proceed from the curse of God and are the fruits of sin. I come indeed to this conclusion, that the Holy Fathers anxiously sighed when being surrounded with so many evils, they were continually reminded of the first origin of all evils and regarded themselves as under the displeasure of God. Therefore, in the expression, the toil of our hands, one kind of toil comprises the whole miserable state into which mankind had fallen. The thorns of work summarizes everything that happened to us in the fall. Because our relationship with our wives, with other human beings, with the very ground, it's all wrapped up in this idea of pain in our work, the, the thorns. Lamech's comment on the name Noah, which strictly speaking means rest, also introduces the related concept of comfort. Man is longing for comfort. This is why the Heidelberg Catechism very wisely begins with that question. What is your only comfort in life and death? This is what man is longing for, comfort and rest. Lamech expects that Noah will bring both rest and comfort from the painful toil. But this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Now listen to these verses. Think about this. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So as we share in his suffering, we share in his comfort. So as we go to him with our sins, as, as we participate in the cross with him by giving him our sin to take his righteousness, through this action, comfort comes to us. The confession of sin gives us comfort in Christ, the comfort that we long for. Right? What else can deliver us from sin? What else? Nothing. The toil that we experience, the the pain of it, is a result of sin. So in order to get rid of the pain, you have to get rid of the sin. Nothing else takes care of the sin but this transaction at the cross where you lay your your sins upon Christ and he lays his righteousness upon you. And, and And there's more exchange than just righteousness. Comfort and rest flows through this exchange into your hearts. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Are you afraid in your work? Are you afraid someone is going to ask you a question that you will actually have to answer? 
Matthew 11:28 Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He is the Lord of the Sabbath and it's not one day a week. It's not one day a week. The Sabbath rest that the Lord offers is continual. He said, "My Father works until now and I work." This is why in the reading for us today it says, "As long as it is today, the rest is available to you." Are you seeking rest not from your work? Because the work isn't the curse. Are you seeking rest from the, t- from the painful toil, from the thorns? When, when the bush suddenly comes back and takes a chunk out of your face, you need somebody to actually fix up, pull out the thorns, and, and clean up your face. This is what we need. The thorns are all around us. Not only do we need to be healed from the thorns that have already taken their pound of flesh, but we need someone to push them back. because It's just constant. Here they are again. Here they are again. Here they are again. Who, who can labor under this? And in Christ, this is where you find your rest. You don't work all week and then come here and have rest. Okay? We're going to get into that in the final sermon about what the Sabbath actually is. Every day, as long as it's today, you go to Christ with your labor and you give it to him. Okay? And this is an exchange that has to happen, as Dean said, over and over and over and over again. It's not, it doesn't suffice to get up in the morning, say, hey, I dedicate the next eight hours to you, bro. And then you go along your way thinking that that's going to cover it. I, I've had to learn this lesson the hard way. This is, these coworkers of mine that I've, I've been somewhat rude about, okay, I, I turn away and I act like I'm typing on my computer because I actually have typing to do. And, and I just pray, God, deliver this person. Deliver me from this person. <laughs> By delivering them from their sin. Okay, I, I have to do it. I get I get a 15-minute break, and I'm telling you, sometimes I go into courtroom three and just get on my knees and pray the whole time. Because I need Noah. Now, we, we think the Christian life should be like the old blues song that I have quoted a lot of times. In heaven, we never have to change our socks. The handouts grow on trees and a little stream of whiskey flows off the rocks. Right? Wouldn't that be nice? No smelly feet, no work. But that's not it. You were made to work selflessly and well. And in order to do it, you need Sabbath rest, don't you? And Jesus doesn't come and say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and you've got to just drag yourself through six days and get to Sunday. No, he enters in with you into your work and gives you rest right there, right when you need it right when the thorn comes into your hand. So we're going to conclude now with a couple of promises about Christ and about our work. Okay, I can stand here all day and say, you were made in the image of God, and go do your work well and, and, and selflessly, and it's going, to be, it's going to be great. We're going to overcome the world. But we're not going to make it till this evening. And, and so this is what you need. I want to put these in your hands. You take them, and this is what you hold on to as you go through the week. Because through them, you're holding on to, to true rest. In Jesus Christ, we have the model spouse, son, and parent. Jesus is the model worker. In all of our vocations, he's the example. The king who wore the crown of thorns is the king who liberates us from the curse of thorns. It is not a coincidence that the thing they jammed on his head was a crown of thorns. And I believe he's still wearing it. The curse that is just wrapped around our axles and fills our minds with lies is the crown that he wears on his head. 
because he took that curse from us and he put it upon his head. And he said, this is what I've done. I've liberated them from this. And so when you picture him, don't worry, you're not breaking the second commandment or any of the commandments. When you picture him, picture him with this crown of thorns, triumphant. He wore it so that you wouldn't have to. He took it upon himself to liberate you from it. If we look to work as a means to fill the deep hole in our hearts, the longing for material security, for purpose, for worth, for respect, if that's what we're looking to work for, we're never going to find it. God the Father said to Jesus, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. That's what you want to hear your boss say? That's what you want to hear your spouse say? As as, uh, Jared was pointing out this morning, this is what we want to hear him say, I am pleased with you. You're not going to get that from your work. You're going to get it from God. You can't enjoy your work without the blessed grace of God. Ecclesiastes 3, 12 through 13. I perceive that there is nothing better, nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift. Okay, there's not music There's not a condition. There's not something about your work that you can change it to get some joy out of it. It's submitting to him and doing it selflessly and doing it well and doing it under the Lord. That is, it's his gift to give you joy in it. You can't get it out of the work all by itself. You can't be fruitful in your work without Jesus. Genesis, or Genesis says, no, sorry. Jesus says in John 15, 4 through 5, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now this is what you need to go back to. Because you'll go to work in the morning and you'll be doing great. And then all of a sudden, thorns will come up and start cutting your hands. And this is what you need. This is what you need. He is the one that gives you joy in it. He is the one that gives you fruit in it. Do you want rest? Again, today you can have it in him. Hebrews 4, 6 through 7. This is Jesus' prayer. And this is what I'm going to leave you with. Everyone listen to this for a moment. Matthew 25 through 30. Matthew 11, 25 through 30. Matthew 11, 25 through 30. This is the Lord's prayer. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus comes and makes us children of God, the children of God that the earth is waiting for. Okay, And and if we live in the gospel, if we're living in the gospel and are carrying it into the workplace, what we are doing is liberating the earth from the thorns. It's in him that we're going to go out in all of our vocations. This is what next week is about. And in our vocations, living in the gospel, living out the gospel, this is how we're actually going to push back the thorns. My coworkers desperately need someone to slay the thorns. I, can, I remember the first time that I, I turned to one of them and I said, you know what, you're right. I, I was angry when I said that, and, I, and please forgive me. And the person didn't talk to me for like three days, mostly because they just had no idea what to do with that. 
uh, when I left that court to go to the court I'm at now, that person in a, in, in a group setting referred to me as a man of God. Because why? I mean, you guys know me. <laughs> right? She saw that I, 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 didn't go, I don't go to work most days for myself. Okay? Again, these defendants, I, I love them as much as I possibly can. The, the people around me are here for my sanctification, and I try to embrace that as much as I can. We're going to live out the gospel to push back the thorns and not only experience rest for ourselves, but to give rest to others who desperately need it. The people you're working with are exhausted. They're full of futility. They're full of the concept of fruitlessness. Thorns are destroying everything they're trying to do, and they need liberation. And so look. Look around you. <laughs> look through the logs in your eyes. Pull them out as much as you can. Take those things to Christ. Put it on him. Okay, his burden is light. Now, why do you think that is? Work is hard. But it's light because God the Father carried it with him. And if you take your yoke and put it in the hands of God, as he carries you, he'll carry it. Amen.